And good afternoon. It's a Friday in town. You're listening to KPFK Los Angeles, 90.7 FM for all of Southern California, 98.7 FM out of Santa Barbara County, streaming for the world at kpfk.org, and of course, podcast out of the iTunes Music Store. Hi, hello, and howdy. Michael Benner with you till 2 o'clock this afternoon. Nice to be with you. And let me begin right off the top, while it's fresh in my mind, by thanking everyone for your support, uh, financial and otherwise, during the recent KPFK Fund Drive. You guys just uh, blow my mind, especially the way you come through on InterVision. This program for, gosh, nearly 10 years was on late at night. We were on, uh, the show I did was uh, Thursdays, as I recall. Uh, yeah, Thursday nights at 11 o'clock, and I think Nita was on uh, uh, Tuesday nights at 11 o'clock for years and years, nine, almost ten years. And then um, we merged with the Aware Show and came on in the middle of the day, and as a strip Monday through Friday, it's done better and better every time we do fundraising. And uh, that's your vote for consciousness programming, Imagine right smack dab in the middle of the daytime programming on the arcane and esoteric. And uh, it's so cool. I think even uh, the anti-war movement is very rapidly shifting from a uh, a political or even social effort toward more of a a spiritual passion, uh, an intolerance of war and cruelty and injustice that is coming from a deeper place. So we're just really, really uh, gratified, happy to be here on KPFK and to have this strip Monday through Friday. And and I get to be your host on Friday, and and, uh, boy, you guys came through with the money. So if you made a pledge, if you made a donation, thank you. If you made a pledge, follow on to that Good Faith Pledge and enjoy any premiums or thank you gifts and... uh, Again, just thanks on behalf of InterVision, KPFK, and the Pacific Commission. Great show for you today. It's my pleasure to introduce a young woman who's been with us in the past and uh, who returns, though it's been a couple of years, and she has a brand new book, and we're going to talk about the nature of love. We're going to talk about emotional love, romantic love. We'll talk about spiritual love, allegories of love, and... uh, mostly about her brand-new book, a novel that's really based on the beautiful allegory from Rumi about the moth and the flame, I guess, is Dr. Connie Zweig. Hello, Connie. Michael, it's so great to see you. Thank you. It's nice to have you back on KPFK. You, last time I saw you a couple of years ago, had just written The Holy Longing. Is that right? That's right. We did a show on The Holy Longing, our spiritual yearning for the divine and trying to understand the psychology of that. Yeah, especially the fact that, uh, you know, there's an old rock and roll song that says simply love hurts. Yes. And uh, forgive me, I should remember who that's by, but I guess it doesn't matter. Uh, In reflecting at the time we did that show and even now again, uh, I'm surprised at how many years it took me to accept that love is not simply this warm, fuzzy presence of someone that we care about. Or on the higher level, our attraction to all things. 
but uh, the, there is this longing, there is this ache, there is this uh, appetite or desire or urge that comes with love and sometimes doesn't really feel all that good. You know, I think we're fed by the media these romantic notions that are really simplistic and sugary, that the perfect partner is just around the corner and he or she will save us and give meaning and purpose to our lives or rescue us from our pain. And then what happens is we find someone with whom to share love and all the shadow issues, of course, come up. And it's a shock to some people. I think our romantic longing, our longing to be loved, in a way is a lower order of our longing to be in union with the divine. Our, un our longing to be in union with another person is a subset of our longing for union with the divine. Well, in your book, The Holy Longing, if I remember right, you were suggesting that every appetite, I mean, even me in front of the refrigerator at 11 at night, ultimately could be traced to an emptiness that is born of the great separation, do you think? Yes, the great separation. What a great phrase. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a yearning for, um, for meaning, for union, for the end of separation that um, occurs at every level on which we live. And so if we begin to look at our yearning for food as a way to fill us up, and we notice that we're overdoing that, we can work with that longing and satisfy that need in other ways once we recognize food's not going to do it. And I think the same is true with sexuality. It's true with other addictions. Um, it shows up in codependency in our relationships. And that's what the holy longing was about. And in the new book, A Moth to the Flame, about the life of Rumi, it's almost like the fiction version of the nonfiction book. I didn't recognize that until after I had written it. But Rumi's longing is so much the stream of his life. It carries him, you know, like a river through every decision, through every attraction. That longing for union just carries him. And that was the once I recognized that it was the only way I could write a character of a male Muslim in 13th century Turkey, yeah. <laughs> because I shared that longing with him. Imagine, uh, I believe it's true. I've heard it said and read someplace that Rumi has become America's most popular poet. Yes, well, again, a 13th century. Uh, a whirling dervish, a Muslim, a Sufi, whoever would imagine that, uh, you know, he would be as popular as he is. Yet, I'm sure there are women and men listening now that are not that familiar with Rumi. So why don't we tell the story of who Rumi, I was going to say was, but I'd like to say is. Yeah, How about the historical I think he, he Rumi is first? in the sense that yeah. he's a presence today because there's so many translators bringing out his poetry and it's reaching the West. And for people in, in Iran, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, he is their Shakespeare. So he has been there for these eight centuries in their literature. When they raise children, they read Rumi poetry, just like we might read Thoreau or Shakespeare. But now it's reached the West in large part because of Coleman Barks's translations, but also many others. And um, I think there are several reasons for this. One is that 
his themes are so universal and his images are so archetypal that they're really timeless. And so eight centuries doesn't really matter because they have this timeless quality to them, like the longing of the human soul that we were talking about. And other themes as well, exile, home, um, love and betrayal, the search for God. Um, there's so many themes and images that touch us today just as much as they really reached people then 800 years ago. His devotion to his teacher. Yes, yes. Um, Shams. Shams, Shams of Tabriz. The way that this came to me is kind of a story in itself. Um, I was immersed in the poetry like so many other people uh, about maybe eight years ago. I was reading all the translations at night before bed, and I was just feeling this ecstatic, loving connection to this being uh, I knew nothing about on a personal level, of course. And I began to have dreams in which Rumi appeared. At first, I didn't recognize that it was Rumi. Uh, there was a man in a caftan and a turban walking down the street, and he was telling me stories. Hmm. And it would happen night after night. And I told my husband, I don't know what this means, but I can't pay attention to it because it's going to grab me and make me do something with it. And so I tried not to heed the call. And I tried and I tried not to pay attention. You know, Michael, I'm trained as a Jungian-oriented therapist, so for me to ignore my dreams... That would be a big <laughs> <deal>. <laughs> It's kind of blasphemous. Right. But after a while, I realized um, it was hopeless because the dreams kept coming, and so I started to write them down. And so I'd wake up each morning and I'd write down these dreams, and I began to think there's a story here but it's not for me. I don't write fiction. I write nonfiction, so I want it to go away. And then an interesting thing happened, a little synchronicity. A flyer came in the mail. A woman, a Persian woman, was teaching about one of Rumi's texts, the, the Mathnawi, the last great collection of stories toward the end of his life. And so I said to my husband, Neil, we got to go. Let's check it out. And we drove downtown. And we met her, and she took out this illuminated book, you know, <clears throat> this book that's written in gold lettering. With the beautiful drawings. With and the, the drawings. Ink, colored inks. Yes, and, like yeah. an ancient manuscript. And when I saw it, I burst into tears. Mm -hmm. And she said, what is it? what's going on with you? And so I told her that I'd been having these dreams. And she said to me, I'll be your translator. So, she and I went to the Persian bookstore in Westwood, and we bought everything we could find in Farsi and in English, written about Rumi and those times. So, when she said translator, she meant from Farsi. From Farsi. Uh, but she would look at the old stories with me and see what was going on in my dreams, try to understand what was happening. And to our shock, what we discovered was that the dreams were telling the same story that appeared in these ancient books about Rumi's life. So then I knew I was sunk, and I had to do something with it. 
And I had no, I can write nonfiction with my eyes closed, but I, I had no confidence about writing fiction. So I went to the UCLA writing program and I studied to write fiction and I took this project on and I realized that we would have to study Sufism because we knew my husband and I knew nothing about it. And we went with the Mevlevis of America, which is Rumi's order, to Turkey and to the city where he lived most of his life in South Central Turkey. And we studied with the man who is the sheikh who holds the, the lineage holder in Rumi's tradition. And we studied with him and learned the practices and uh, visited the sites, the shrines, and Rumi's um, mausoleum, which is now a, a museum in Konya, Turkey. And I still didn't feel like I could had the skill to write the book. I still felt like I was way over my head. And I went back to the poetry. And as I stayed with it, what I began to see was that his longing was my longing. That his yearning that appears in so much of the poetry, especially at a certain period in his life, is the holy longing that I had written about. And as soon as I saw that, I realized I could write the book. And so it tells the story of this um, boy who grew up. He was actually born in Afghanistan, near some of the cities we hear about in the news today. And um, at that time, there was also a war going on in that area. The Mongols were invading. And his father decided, and his father was a sheikh, he was a head of a community, and he decided to take the family and the followers and to leave the country. And so they went, and they traveled in exile for a number of years when Rumi was a boy. And they wandered. And I began to understand all the poems about wandering and searching for home, which is a kind of restlessness that I've also felt. And what does home really mean? Would a vision quest be the same as a search for home, a search for identity, for meaning? I mean, all of the, in a sense, all of the human adventures are about a, a better sense of who we are and what we're for, right? You know, there are so many motifs here that appear in all of the human tales that are really tales of the soul, the journey of the soul. If we look at the story of Jesus or the story of Siddhartha or so many saints and sages, we start to see there are recurring themes, and exile is one of them. That longing for home is one of them. So I also started to see that, and that was how the book began to come together. I started to see these kind of mythic moments in his life where um, he hears the call to leave his ordinary life, just now, like the Buddha did. Now, the moth to the flame, obviously, uh, well, maybe not so obviously. Let me let me say the idea that, that the moth is attracted to a flame that in many cases devours, consumes. Burns him up. Yeah. Yes. Exhausts him, extinguishes him. Yes. I used to always take a uh, odd pleasure in a don't have the same home with the same front porch I used to have, but seemed every spring the same spider, it probably wasn't, I'm sure it was a lineage of spiders, would always 
managed to spin a web around that porch light. They they seemed to know that that light was going to attract dinner. Yeah, so it yeah. Was going to stake out its little. <laughs> they were in cahoots with yeah. the moths. Yeah. Well, that image of the moth being consumed in the light is a metaphor for the ego being consumed in enlightenment. And Rumi used that image, you know, very specifically to mean um, what the Sufis call die before you die, that there's a certain um, death of the old self before the new self can be resurrected. So do Sufis, and we should explain briefly, Sufis are basically the mystics of the of Islam. Yes. As uh, uh, Jewish people have the, the Kabbalah and the uh, Christians have the Rosicrucians and and uh, all the great religions have their their uh, mystical side. And again, you were talking about the media earlier misrepresenting love. Well, they misrepresent hate and fear too. And the idea that all Muslims are these fanatic uh, terrorists, of course. Uh, um, yes. Well, that's one of the the themes that I I needed to take on in the book, because that was going on then as well. There were fundamentalist Muslims then. Who were very who took stands against in Rumi's time? Oh yeah, and they took stands against what Rumi began to do, because when he after he met his teacher Shams, who you mentioned, he began to step away from that relationship to Islam and become more and more of a mystic, which means a more direct, unmediated relationship with the divine, a more per, personal yeah. participation with spiritual practice. So nicely said. Direct, personal, and unmediated. Yes. That sort of means we don't really need the churches and temples. Well, that's the threat to them, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we need teachers, I think. But I'm not sure that we need the earthly masters, you know, sitting at the lotus feet of the earthly master. And there will always be teachers, and we need teachers, but... It sort of belies the fact that each of us has a master within. You know, I really struggled with that when I wrote Holy Longing because I was looking at the psychology of the teacher-student relationship. And um, I have, before really writing that, I really took a stand against it as you were just doing. And I think rather it's a developmental process and that some people really need a spiritual teacher or a spiritual mentor or a guide or a scout, whatever we call it, at a certain stage in order to be able to turn within. I can understand. And I think what happens is with so many of the teachers are not fully awake, and so they don't encourage their students to let go of them. Right. And that's where they get stuck. They get stuck in obedience and in subordinate positions, and then power shadow starts to come up. Is that what kill the Buddha is about in Eastern philosophy, that there's yes. a point where you let that master go yes. and now you're on your own, buddy? Take the training wheels off, you can do it. That's exactly right. Yeah. And this theme is occurs in Rumi's story, you know, because he does fall so madly, crazily intoxicated with this man, Shams, and he does allow his world to be overturned by this relationship and by his teachings. And it starts to look like he's going to get stuck there in this place where you and I were just talking about. And Shams leaves. He leaves town. He just disappears. 
almost like he knows the dangerousness of what's going on. And Rumi sends his oldest son to go and find him and bring him back and beg him to return because he needs this object of adoration to burn. He's just, it's, he needs that at that stage. A physical representation yes, of the divine. Yes, and of self-realization or of whatever we call it, of God consciousness, you know, in, in, in Sufism, it's Baka. He's attained Baka. So Shams comes back. But there's so much enmity now at that stage about this friendship. There, all of these sort of allies and enemies have taken sides. And um, one of the people who is very against them is Rumi's younger son <clears throat> and some of the followers as well, some of the students. And so the community becomes very split and it becomes actually dangerous for Shams to stay there. And at a certain point, he knows that his life is at risk. And should I tell? <laughs> sure. You know, the legend goes... Tell. The legend goes that he was murdered. Shams. Shams was murdered. And so, once again, Rumi is freed from this outer object of worship. But in agonizing. In total agony. Liberation. In total grief and loss and betrayal because of who commits the murder. Such betrayal. And some who of thinks this, of abandonment as liberation? Who thinks of being left as a, a freedom? But That's right. This is this transition that we're talking about. And forgive the interruption, but my ego nature is looking at the clock. Mm -hmm. Let me reintroduce you, Dr. Candy Zweig. She's the author of The Holy Longing and a new novel, a wonderful book called The Moth to the Flame. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about Rumi and spiritual love. And I want to follow on. Well, no, I interrupted you. I want you to finish that, and then I, I want to go to a couple of places with this. So go ahead, tell. Well, you know, the bad news is that there's a tragedy here of epic proportions. You know, the lover and the beloved believe that they are meant to be together and that it is fate and um, that the loss of the beloved is the end of life. But, and again, that's another one of those kind of mythic moments, one of those archetypal moments we were talking about. It's like um, Jesus on the cross, believing that he's forsaken by God. In the same way, Rumi felt forsaken by God when Shams was taken. But what came of this is that Rumi turned within and that he became the beloved. He became, he was able to attain the level of consciousness or the Sufi station, as they call it, that Shams carried. And he was able to become that and embody that and live that level of consciousness. And that is how he became a spiritual master. Now, the poetry, uh, for me, I believe, came out of the grief. It, we can look at the stages of the poetic writings, and we can see sort of before Shams, during Shams, after Shams, and, and it kind of, they kind of are revealing in that way. During the separations from Shams, the poetry is burning, longing separation meaning what you t were talking about, the separation from God, 
the state of consciousness of duality. But later we see through the poetry that he has attained union. And it's not union with the teacher. It's union with the self, capital S, or the divine, or whatever we call it, with God. Well, if I may, this is, you've referred to it as the higher self. Uh-huh. And uh, I'm going to call it, for lack of a better term, the oversoul. Uh-huh. Um, that which uh, occupies a, uh, a place perhaps between the most divine and our incarnated self. And, and it leads to my question because in the East, there seems to be contradictions about whether there is such a thing. Uh, there are some interpretations of Hinduism and Buddhism and, and other sects that say, oh, no, death, you just merge to the ocean of oneness and that's it. You are the one and there is nothing, no intermediate uh, stage where you're a, uh, well, the Sufis talk about the ocean, the wave, and the dewdrop. Where, and I think it's a beautiful allegory that as the soul, I'm the wave. I'm not that wave. I'm not that wave over there. But my, I'm clearly the ocean. But when we become the water vapor, the cloud, the raindrop, the mountain river, then we forget that we are the ocean. And so the Sufis obviously believe in this trinity. Uh, in the West, we have trinities, but I don't think we really get it. I don't think we really understand it. And one day I'll do another show on why I think that, <laughs> that is. In the West, I think Christians tend to kill the soul too, uh, or demean it or degrade it. But what about this Eastern concept that we come up against uh, even in, in, in Hinayana and Mahayana Buddhism, I think there's maybe two teachings, a teaching uh, about the soul not existing, uh, just a duality of the one and the many, and then for maybe the priests or the more advanced Buddhists, a sense of, oh, yeah, since you graduated to this level, we might as well tell you there is such a thing as a, a spiritual essence that shares the ground of the one. Help me out with this. Well, my, you know, I've been reading these materials as long as you have now. <laughs> I think 36, 38 years or something. And at different stages, I've had different interpretations of this dilemma of is there a self? Is there no self? Is there emptiness? Is there fullness? Where is the illusion in all of this? Where is the truth in all of this? And... Um, I think, you know, in Sufism, in what they call the Sufi stations, which are the levels of consciousness, there is initially what they call fana, which is transcendence. And the experience of transcendence is like samadhi. It's the experience of no self. It's the experience of, an, of silence. And subjectively, that feels empty. There's no, there's awareness without an object of awareness, and so that self-other thing that we're used to isn't there in those moments. But that's a very initial stage. It's initial in Sufism. It's, it's, an, it's preliminary in Vipassana. It's preliminary in Hindu practice. It's a very preliminary stage of um, what we could just call transcendence. We could say it's actually, it's a state. I think it's better to say it's a state than a stage. And using Wilbur's language. And then, you know, there are 
stages or levels, once that gets cultivated and becomes more permanent, there is a level of consciousness where there is a witness. So there is something there that's watching everything, that's silent. We could call it pure consciousness. We could call it the absolute. We could call it the witness, like Gurdjieff does. Um, and that that stage or level of consciousness of the witness is also quite elementary because it's still duality. It's still... It's, I am that, I am that witness, but everything else is not that, that divine, that I God. am that I am. Yes. Not this I am, but yes. you still have these two I am. You still have two. Right. And so then there are further stages in which the senses begin to become refined, and the object of perception is no longer separate. I am... Um, uh, I am this, I am that, I am thou art that. Thou, the object of perception, is also that. And that's a kind of non-duality. That's an early level of non-duality because the thing that you're looking at ha shows the same face of the self that you experience as yourself. And I found that in Rumi's poetry where that was happening for him. And it's really evident where he, where that happens with him in relation to Shams. He loses the separation between him and his teacher, his beloved. But isn't it even more tragic, especially in the West, when we view God itself as separate and remote? Now we've you know, got a third I, that that we are not. Yes, it's true. And I think a lot of that is the influence of the institutions and the clergy in all the religions of the West. You well, know, all a, three Western religions emphasize that God right. is transcendent. That's right. God is other. And that's part of the source of our holy longing. We think we're longing for something outside of ourselves. And, you know, people who have teachers put that on their on their gurus. Well, even if God is transcendent and probably is more than we could imagine, it wouldn't be an or, it would be an and. I mean, so much of mysticism, I think, comes down to weeding out all of those ors. Is it the two hemispheres of the brain? Is it just the fact that we're the nature of form that we're born into, that, that, that we feel so lonely and abandoned, that uh, we, we, everything is or, and the more stressed and, and frightened and fearful we become, the more we use or instead of and. I've had people on this radio station screaming at me because I used the word and, mm. and they were fighting for the right. To make things either or. Well, I think, you know, there's a few levels of that. Because there's an actual spiritual practice of discrimination. Um, in India, it's called neti neti. It's not this, not that, not this, not that. That actually gets you to it's all that. <laughs> in <through laughs> but, the back door. but in the meantime, you're discriminating either this or that, either this or that. In the me it's a practice of discrimination. But I think what you're describing is much more of a cultured, learned, um, dialectical Yes. Way of thinking. False dichotomies. Yeah, that yeah. sets up all these separations and reifies our uh, experience 
that we are separate. And the purveyors of fear have begun to master this. Mm-hmm. I mean... You're the, with us or against yeah, us. Yeah. Stay the course or cut and run. Uh, now we have good torture. I didn't know there was such a thing as good torture until recently, but there is red, white, and blue torture and t- TV programs, you know, about good torture. and. So this black and white thinking doesn't really allow for any kind of nuance or holding of something larger. You know, Jung used to talk about the transcendent function, which was that third thing that could hold the two opposites together. And if you kind of hold the tension of those two either-or opposites, that eventually you'll actually see this third thing, you'll experience it, and you'll move past that dichotomy. And that's love, isn't it? Consciousness, that's love so is consciousness. so much the nature of love, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's so cohesive much. and magnetic. And mm-hmm. And we're talking about now uh, the law of attraction, mm-hmm. big buzz. Everybody's mm-hmm. got the secret. They're talking about the law of attraction. Well, what's so damn attractive? It's love, mm-hmm. but not as an emotion so much. I mean, that can be attractive too, but the as an intention, f- yeah, or, or uh-huh. the force, uh-huh. as Lucas called it. Uh-huh. Let's take a short break, and we'll come back. And would you like to take some phone calls too? And um, you're doing an appearance soon, too, we want to promote. You're going to be at Alexandria, too, later this month? Yes, I'm going to be doing a reading from A Moth to the Flame for people in the Pasadena area on Wednesday night, March 21st. It's 7.30 at Alexandria 2 Bookstore on South Lake Avenue. Right, which is just south of the freeway a few blocks. Nice bookstore. And my guest is Dr. Connie Zweig, and we're talking about mysticism, obviously, and particularly the Sufi tradition of Rumi for her latest book is called, well, it's a novel, actually, that plays on this rich, rich allegory of the moth to the flame, or the reed to the reed bed. Maybe we can talk about that one, too. But let's take a short break, and we'll be back. If you'd like to call with your questions for Dr. Zweig, 818-985-5735. The telephone number, Brooks is our producer. You'll talk to her, 818-985-5735. We'll be right back. This is InterVision on KPFK. KPFK and your very own radio, 90.7 FM for all of Southern California. We're talking about mysticism today. InterVision is a program about consciousness and metaphysics, spirituality, um, and when I say consciousness, I guess the hook that I go to more often than any other is to ask ourselves the deeper questions of why we do the things we do, say the things we say, why we feel the way we feel from time to time, why we think the way we think, and who is this we we're talking about anyway. It speaks to not only motive, but identity and we're having a great time today with Dr. Connie Zweig, who's a, a psychotherapist in the Jungian tradition with a practice in Santa Monica. You have a website, too, at ConnieZweig.com. That's right. And um, Connie has uh, a new book. She was here a few years ago with a book I loved, still do, called The Holy Longing. And that um, has evolved into a novel uh, based on the Rumi allegory of the moth to the flame. And how about the reed to the reed bed, the plaintive sound of the flute? You know, I think that when the reed is pulled from the reed bed, it's, and it becomes, you could say, it, it becomes the flute. 
the flute is calling for home and i think that image came up for rumi during his exile as a child when he really began to think in images well you know you also have moses found among the reeds and the rushes yes, don't we that's right isn't that interesting there are a lot of similar themes to the bible as in this story yeah and in the story of siddhartha as well Often when I talk about involution and evolution or the prodigal son or any of these allegories about finding your way home, there's a voice in my head that teases me. And sometimes I say it out loud and often as not, I repress it. I, I talk about home again, home again, jiggy jig. <laughs> <laughs> my mother's wagging my toes, you know, but it's deep, isn't it? It must be in every cell in our body, this ache. Well, I think, you know, the Sufis call it the great return. And they say, um, from God we come and to God we return. And for them, that is home. Home is not geography. But of course, you know, there are many levels of home. But spiritually for them, home means returning to union with the divine. Just before we went on the air this afternoon, you and I chatted, though, briefly in the green room, the kitchen <laughs> at KPFK. And uh, we were talking about, or I had proposed that there is a bridge, perhaps, between the idea of personal development and spiritual development, or between love in an emotional or romantic sense, and this more inclusive idea of, of spiritual love. And uh, you suggested that you'd given that a lot of thought yourself. Can you share a little about that? Am I being maybe too well, uh, you know, separative I, in my attempt to be inclusive? <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's actually a good discrimination to make. Yeah. I think the terminology is so generic that we can get into trouble. But I think that when we talk about working on ourselves, when we talk about psychotherapy, um, self-esteem, depression, anxiety, addiction, um, when we talk about relationship conflicts, um, what I've called shadow work in a couple of my books, you know, those fall within the range of what you're calling personal development. They're not about transcendence so much. Now, they may be about... It's about being in the world. It's about being in the world, in the body, in relationship. But, you know, it, we, could, we could say it's about transcendence in the sense that it is about going beyond an earlier stage of development. So I might work with someone and help them through, you know, what's an adolescent issue to become more an adult. And in a way, so they transcend certain issues or struggles, but that's kind of a relative meaning of the word transcendence. And when we were talking earlier about states, states of samadhi, states of fana, the Sufis call fana, states in meditation that we would call transcendence, that's kind of a different meaning for it. And to me, the practices that cultivate that, states of transcendence, those are the practices that cultivate spiritual development. They're not about fixing us. They're not about ego um, ego operating in the world. And what I mentioned to you, and we didn't get a chance to finish the conversation, so you can tell me now, 
the Eric Fromm line about only the fully realized ego or the fully developed ego can be dropped. You hesitated a minute. Yeah. Um, oh gosh, Michael, this is a long story. You know, when you I wrote when I when I wrote the Holy Longing, <laughs> I really I did it in the framework of Ken Wilber's Levels of Consciousness. It was a developmental framework and I agreed with that premise at the time that the work of the ego needs to be complete before higher levels of consciousness can really be stabilized. I've now met quite a number of people for whom that just isn't the case. There are people who have established higher levels of consciousness and still have stuff to work out. So we can be in different positions on the ladder. That's right. Simultaneously. That's right. Now, if we use Wilbur again, he has this idea of lines of development. So we might be in a high level of consciousness, but be cognitively undeveloped or emotionally undeveloped. And that's what I think has happened with so many of the gurus who have acted out their shadows. They have a high level of consciousness, and yet in some arenas, they're very undeveloped. So they act out sexually, they coerce people financially, all these things have happened, and so some people will conclude, well, then they can't really be fully awake. But I think that what's happened, and now that I know some of these people intimately, I think what happens is that you actually can achieve a high level of consciousness, but 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 be very undeveloped in certain ways and have a lot of thing, issues to still work out. A phrase that came to me once and I still am not sure how I feel about it when I see these gurus behaving badly, um, is the soul dressing up, no, the ego dressing up like the soul. Mm, mm -hmm. The ego dressing up like the soul. But maybe it's just our, again, we're back to this, we want this linear hierarchy. We yeah. want this straight line model of ascension and redemption and stuff. And uh, it may be more holographic or multidimensional than all of that. And uh, why well, not? Well, yeah. You know, my, my sort of current take on it is it's so much about kundalini and the chakras and where the kundalini can actually get stabilized. And if it can get stabilized at a certain level, there's still karma to work out at other levels. Yeah. Like there may still be karma in the third chakra, even though it's stabilized. Up and high. the integration of head and heart and our behavior. I have a lot of separation still. I, I just so rely on my head. Uh -huh. And I have to, I go into the heart like, like you go into a swimming pool uh -huh. on a cool day. You, you know, take a, little, a dip. Yeah, but just a little at a time, you know. Uh -huh. Sometimes it just doesn't feel safe to go into that mm -hmm. place. And yet mm -hmm. I know, head knows that's where it's got to go. But it, it it likes its cerebral mastery sometimes. The know. Sufis have a saying that um, at a certain station or stage, they call it, the mind drops into the heart. Oh, there you go. Yeah. They yeah. describe it that well, way. Well, I'm wading in slowly sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take some phone calls from our guest, Dr. County Zweig. And uh, we'll start in Santa Monica with Anna. Hi, you're on KPFK and Intervision. Hello, Anna. Hello. How are you today? Better and better. Thank you. So when you're in the state of pain and going through transformation, and is there a way to, to really see that you become the beloved that when you have the loss and, and you, you're feeling that pain and that separation, 
whether it be from you know a family member, a friend, uh, a job, whatever it is that you are attached to, when you and and that made you feel like you were whole, and then you start feeling in that moment maybe maybe that you can be whole on yourself, but then you start to doubt because you're in so much pain. Yes, Anna, I understand. I think that in part you said something really important, which is that that person or that thing was making you feel whole. Right. So you were giving a part of yourself to, to something outside of yourself, and when it was taken away, you felt empty. Yep. So I think part of the task for you there is to ta- begin to take that back. Begin to look at what it was that was that you were giving away. And this is the work of projection right? and reowning projections. And there's a, actually a lot of this material in the holy longing. Mm-hmm. So it's really about looking at what am I giving away here that I lo- that I believe I lost, which you didn't. Right. And how can I begin to cultivate that in me? And this is not a panacea for your pain. This is not a quick fix. It doesn't mean you shouldn't feel loss or grief because we do. We all do. It's part of being human with separation. I made a big step last night and I called my my brother-in-law that I hadn't spoken to in 30 years when my husband died 30 years ago this month. And I just found him on the Internet and called him out of the blue. And it was the greatest gift. Oh, that's it was, beautiful. It was so magical. That's beautiful. A gift, we, a gift you received, it. Anna? A gift that you received? A gift that I received yeah. and a gift that he received. As well. Too. As well. And it was so, and I just did it on, on, a, on a whim. Yeah. You faced fear. That's the gift of I facing fear. I faced a big fear. Yeah. Thanks, Anna. Thank you. Wish Bless you well. John, you're on KPFK on Intervision with Michael Benner and my guest, Annie Zweig. Hi, John. Yes, hi. Thanks for taking the call. Um, I, I, by the way, I love the reading of Rumi that I'm hearing here from the doctor, and, and even in the way the, the last call was handled, I can see the, 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 the payoff for, for this, the practice of Jungian therapy there, and it's, it makes me really want to, to uh, look at Rumi that way. But what prompted my call is while I was holding and listening to that, I, I have to say I addressed this to the host, and it's sort of the second time I've caught the show and the same thing struck me, and I think it may be something you might want to adjust or, or address, which is uh, you, you have an allegiance to a kind of harmonizing mind and consciousness and spirit of a unity, as you say, an and and not an or, which is very moving and very important. But the very way in which you talk about what you call the Western mind or Western religions or the way Christianity destroys the soul, you're, you fall immediately into a very destructive and automatically dismissive language. When you talk about Western religion, you sound like Bush on Iraq. <laughs> and I wonder if you're conscious of that kind of, of uh, I mean, talk about dualism. I mean, you really are driving spikes, and it seems to me that the opposite of what I, what I listen to with pleasure from you, uh, it seems to me a very kind of unpurged and unexamined automatic I mean, it, it's a caricature of Western tradition. When you hear Augustine say uh, in his Confessions, God, you were within me, and I were without myself, everything you say about Western Christianity turns into a kind of species of nonsense when one really contemplates a passage like that. Are you aware of that kind of destructive, divisive dualism in your language? Oh, uh, from time to time. 
I don't know that it's as destructive as you're suggesting. Well, it makes an enemy of the other guy. Well, if that's uh, not dualism, I don't know what is. Well, let me an- turning up because yeah. of that kind of thought. Yeah, let me try to answer you because uh, a, a lot of what you're probably picking up on is just the the damage that was done to me by Western religion, by my own Catholicism, which uh, was uh, torture. Me too, me too. And you sound like Brother Reardon. (laughs) Well, so I have uh, an affinity for the Eastern religions. We're talking about Middle Eastern concepts of mysticism. I do want to slow down. Give me a second here to to hopefully redeem myself. I'd like to hear what the doctor, as an analyst, thinks of what she's hearing and the kind of anger that comes from you. Uh, I don't think it's anger. I think, as I said, it's hurt. Well, you said the Christian religion uh, tr- destroys the soul. That's a quote. Okay, John, let's give Michael a chance to. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, I'll just go on. This is I starting to be more about. On the radio now. Well, you're going to go away now. Oh, now I've been abandoned again. <laughs> I don't know. I, first of all, bifurcation is a way to approach all understanding. You divide East and West. I'm certainly not the first person to look at the amazing. Uh, uh, duality of Eastern culture and Western culture. Uh, I love Christianity. Um, I consider myself as much a Christian mystic as a um, as a as a Buddhist, as a as a shaman, as a Kabbalist. Uh, that much of Christian mysticism is based on Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism, and it's really in the mystical traditions where all this comes together. And, um, yeah, I, I don't think it's, at least I hope that it's not perceived as hurtful or as divisive as John is perceiving it. But, um, yeah, I'll cop to, I think what he's perceiving is the damage that the church did to me when it would point to Christ still on the cross in the Catholic church and saying that was my fault and that, uh, I would protest in catechism. And they said, oh, no, you give it up. It was your fault. It's original sin. You were born with it. You're really, you know, your dad's right. You really are a rotten little kid. So I was tortured at home. I was tortured in the church. And and uh, we're working on it. We're working on healing it, John. Thanks for pointing it out. I think that, you know, so many of us who are drawn to the mystical streams of the Western traditions have a certain antipathy to the institutional versions of those religions. And I think what John is pointing out is really constructive in the sense that we need to watch our own shadow projections and not perpetuate them. We need to, um, you know, honor what is beautiful and sacred in those traditions. But at the same time, we don't want to romanticize them. We want to look honestly at their destructiveness as well. And I think what Michael's been trying to do with his show all these years is point out that at the core of those traditions, there's something, there's not only something sacred, there are practices that will bring us to God. And that the churches, meaning the institutions in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, have pretty much forbade that. And that's what Michael has been trying to bring people back to with his show. I believe that's your intention. 
Yeah, just the exploration, the healing. Isn't growth healing and learning? And isn't that what life is? is you can call it redemption, salvation, uh, uplifting, atonement, uh, refinement, transmutation. we got lots of words for it. but Well, and holding that double awareness of what's dark and what's light yeah. about them. After all, this, is, this church not only tortured me, but burned eight million women at the stake. Yeah. This is the Inquisition on a couple of different occasions where not only heathens, so-called non-Christians, were murdered and slaughtered, but other Christians, mystics like us, Cathars, for example, who simply wanted to have a personal relationship with the divine through the teachings of Christ Jesus. Okay, who said these things I do, you can do and more, but then it's yes. sort of like our whole interest is to get out of here and get to heaven, and I got yes. mine, and I'm saved, and all you others. Uh, you it know, got so. hijacked after the councils in the later yeah. church. It but really to point it, it out, hijacked. I don't think is divisive. I think it's a necessary stage of promoting the healing. I think what John was saying is he wanted to hear the value of people like Augustine and Teresa and St. John and these people as well. He needs so, to listen more than twice. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I'll celebrate all these wonderful Christian saints, uh, St. Francis, for example. And uh, um, uh, now I'm blanking of her, St. Teresa of Avila, who I happen to love, and, and her student, St. John of the Cross, and and Jacob Bohm and Meister Eckhart, and these are all Christian mystics who I who I endear, who I love greatly. We're almost out of time. I want to thank you for being here again. Your new book is called The Moth to the Flame, and you also have this wonderful other book that I want to make sure everybody knows about called The Holy Longing that's only been out a couple of years, and that really led to your new novel, The Moth to the Flame. Yes, that's right. Tell us again where you're going to be later this month so people can buy your book and get it signed and hear you do some reading. Yeah, well, A Moth to the Flame is on Amazon, available. And if you want to see me and get a signed copy, you can come to Alexandria 2 Bookstore Wednesday night, March 21st, and that's at South Lake Avenue in Pasadena. And what's on your website? If we go to counties.com, what do we find there? You can read excerpts of Meeting the Shadow, Romancing the Shadow, The Holy Longing, and A Moth to the Flame. You can um, read about my psychotherapy practice. And before long, you'll be able to hear this podcast with Michael Benner. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I want to make sure people know that Zweig is... E before I, so it's forget the rules of phonetics. Maybe this is the case where the W is a vowel. I never really <laughs> figured that one out. But counties like Z-W-E-I-G, is that right? Thank you, Michael. All right. And uh, buy the book, uh, buy them all, uh, Holy Longing, Moth to the Flame. We're going to do more on Rumi. He's becoming increasingly popular, and these allegories are rich. They're truly rich, and they just keep unfolding like a fractal to infinity. You never run out of understanding when you pursue these mystical teachings. East, Middle East, and did I say West as well? <laughs> I hope so. Thanks for listening. Thanks for calling. Oh, I wanted to mention the World Healing Meditation because KPFK's own Lisa Gar will be speaking tomorrow night at the Spiritual Unity Movement World Healing Meditation at the Onion in North Hills, 9550 Haskell. 
And uh, Stephen Longfellow Fisk is going to be there with his guitar and his wonderful songs and music. And Lisa's going to speak about purpose. So might want to check it out tomorrow night, 7 o'clock at The Onion in uh, the San Fernando Valley, 866-204-2261 for more information. Thanks for listening. Thanks for calling. Visit TheAgelessWisdom.com. And as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Bender. We may say a lost farewell to the You've been listening to Intervision on KPFK.